Genesis 16 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family for her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband, to his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she was pregnant, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Then the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. She gave him his name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. All right, well, beginning around the 1960s, the American government was so concerned with Russian submarine attacks, this is a true story, that they placed underwater microphones all the way throughout the ocean. But when the Cold War ended in the 1980s, marine biologists needed something to do with those microphones. So they started using them to listen and learn about whales. It's a true story. So what's the most single interesting thing that research discovered? In 1992, scientists heard a solitary male blue whale. And he had been born with some sort of defect. And his song, or his call to the other whales, registered at 52 hertz. So marine biologists started calling this creature 52. Unfortunately, the average frequency of a whale call is around 20 hertz, which is barely even something that we can hear. So researchers studied this whale for over a decade and they came to a really heartbreaking conclusion. This whale followed all the migratory patterns that all the other whales of his species followed. But because of his abnormal call, he had never found companionship. He never had a pod. He circled the globe many times, repeatedly calling out. That's how whales find each other. But no other whales could hear him. No whales could find him. No whales probably ever even saw him. In the time since, 52 has become somewhat of an inspirational symbol for the lonely, the deaf, the single, the depressed, the sad, of course, that whale doesn't know about any of that. He just continues to swim the globe all alone. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you ever feel like that whale? Do you ever feel like you're circling this globe over and over, 
but won't find a group that will welcome you? Do you ever feel unheard? Do you ever feel unseen? Well, each Sunday this winter, we're going to study a different story in the Bible where someone who was alone or abused or misunderstood declares that God has seen them and God has heard them. So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Genesis 16, chapter 16, as we discover a tragic story of neglect, but also one that has a beautiful reminder that God sees us and hears us in our lowest and our loneliest moments. I'd like us to just talk about this story in three quick parts. In section one, let's learn the story and uh, uncover the misery of Hagar, this Egyptian woman. In section two, let's discover God's grace to Hagar and remember that God is good to us even as we suffer. And in section three, let's talk about the relevance of this story to us because the Bible is never just telling us stories for no reason or just for the sake of information. It's always teaching us something about God or something about us or in this case, something about God and us. All right, let's talk about the misery of Hagar. Is this story that the worship team just read to us begins right from the start. We see that this Egyptian woman has had a hard life. She is a slave. And uh, as the story goes on in Genesis 16, verse 1 and verse 4, we see that she's exploited economically. She's not paid for all the work that she does, and she's also tragically exploited sexually and doesn't have a say in her reproductive story. It's supposed to make us feel uncomfortable. We're supposed to feel sorry and empathetic for this woman because she's just the property of Hagar. She's just the property of Sarai. Well, if that's not bad enough, as the story goes on, she's exploited even more. Because here in uh, verse 4, It says that uh, she begins to despise her mistress, and then her mistress begins to despise her. Later on in verse 6, there's one person that could fix the situation. There's one person that could kind of put things back to how they're supposed to be, and that would be Abram kind of taking ownership over this terrible situation that these in his household have uh, come to. But there will be no justice from the one person who can provide it because Abram just kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, do whatever you want. I don't want to deal with this problem anymore. Probably the worst part of the story is that uh, later on, Abram and Sarai are able to conceive. And as they become pregnant, they no longer need Hagar and this son Ishmael. And they literally cast him off into the desert to die with Hagar in Genesis 21, verses 10 to 11. As we just kind of put all those things together and think about what's occurring in this ancient and really uncomfortable story, we see that Hagar's suffering in these two chapters, it's all-encompassing. She's exploited. She's beaten. She's thirsty. And she's futureless. That is a low point that this character is undergoing. And I would just throw the question out to you guys. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been undercompensated? Have you ever been bullied? Have you ever been 
discarded. And if your answer to any of those questions is yes, perhaps you can empathize and understand a little bit of what Hagar is going through. But as we move on, we see that God is dispensing grace to Hagar, even in this really terrible situation. And the first of the three ways that we see that is that even in the depths of her misery, even in the lowest of the low, this story is meant to communicate to us that Hagar is seen by God. Listen to her own words in Genesis 16:13. Uh, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, "You are the God who sees me." For she said, "I have now seen the one who sees me." So even at her lowest point, uh, if you have a chance this week to read the rest of the story, uh, there's, there's ways that God's, God provides and there's ways that the angel announces promises that even though this is a terrible situation that nobody would choose, Hagar, in her own words, feels that she has been seen and understood by God. And that is definitely an example of God's grace. As we move on to another example of God's grace, even in the lowest of low moments, we see that God lovingly and supernaturally provides for Hagar and her son. And if you have a chance to look at Genesis 21, 19, just when they think they're going to die in the desert, just when they think they're going to die of thirst, this angel comes and supernaturally opens up their eyes to this well uh, that they're able to go and drink from. Uh, they are uh, rejuvenated and they're able to continue on with their journey. And um, something that's really interesting about that part of the story is that Sarah, um, Hagar and Ishmael have been cast out. They've been thrown out of this little nomadic village, this little tent that Abraham oversees with all the livestock and all the servants and all the safety that comes through being in this little enclosure. And they're cast out. And in that moment, I don't imagine... Uh, Hagar could have felt any lower, and I don't uh, imagine that she could have felt any more neglected by God. But it's in that displacement, it's through getting cast out, that the first steps of this journey begins that ends and all of Ishmael's sons becoming this great nation that's also promised. In other words, if you think about it, it's through that harsh displacement that the fulfillment of God's promise to make Ishmael's descendants, a great nation, begins to take place. And so I just want to throw that out there that this is true for us as well. Sometimes what feels like harsh displacement in our lives is also the beginning of God's next or better blessing to us. A final example of God's grace to Hagar in this really uncomfortable story is that if you guys read through Genesis, there's just there's kind of one thing that holds it all together. It really holds the whole Old Testament together, and it's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And it happened one chapter earlier. It comes in Genesis chapter 15. But up to this point, all these Old Testament characters are just kind of these random nomadic people. Uh, they're, they're spreading out. Uh, they're all doing sinful, terrible things. They're not these moral examples that we often think Bible characters are supposed to be. But then in Genesis 15, God says to this character Abram, I'm going to bless all the people of the world, but I'm going to do it through your descendants. You're going to be, my, you're going to be like this chosen line, and all of your descendants are going to experience, uh, they're going to be a great nation, they're going to have 12 tribes, uh, they're, they're going to thrive in this desert region. 
And those promises to Abraham come there in Genesis 15. And then Genesis 16 happens. And they don't, Abram and Sarah don't believe that those promises are going to come true. It says that 10 years have gone by, so they try to take matters into their own hands. And this difficult situation uh, with, uh, with Hagar comes up. To make a long story short, Hagar's cast off into the desert, and it seems like God is playing favorites. Do you guys ever feel like God plays favorites? It seems like because Hagar and Ishmael are not part of this promised line, that they're just going to get discarded off into the desert to die, and God is going to go on taking care of his favorites. That's kind of what you're supposed to think the first time you read through the story. But then as you get on a little bit later to Genesis 17:20, as you get on to Genesis 21, we see that God is keeping every promise that he made to Abram and Sarai and their son Isaac, and he's keeping those same promises true to Hagar and her son as well. This promise that your descendants will be numerous people, that your descendants will uh, have 12 tribes, that they'll become a great nation. Now, we know historically that these people became um, the people that embraced Islam, that we would call this the Islamic region of the world today. But the beauty of this story is that God is, promise, is keeping all the promises that he made to Abraham and his descendants, the numerous people, the 12 tribes, the great nations, and he's keeping those promises to Sarah, I'm sorry, to Hagar and Ishmael as well. Uh, and I, I think that's just a really beautiful aspect of God, that even when it seems like he's playing favorites, and even when it seems like he has this one plan over here, there's just grace and goodness, even to the people outside of, uh, of maybe where your eyes are looking in that direction. Well, for the sake of time, let's move on here to section three, and, and let's talk about the relevance and the application to modern readers. This was a story that occurred over 3,000 years ago. Probably not a lot of you are Middle East scholars with a lot of interest in uh, all the descendants from that region. Why is this in the Bible, and what does it all mean for us? Let's just close with three quick points. The first relevant and application, uh, the first relevant application of the story is this. We're supposed to feel uncomfortable. We're supposed to feel empathy for Hagar. And we're supposed to realize the same thing that she realizes, and it's this. Even in the depths of your betrayal and your misery and your loneliness, God sees you. Isn't that beautiful? That's what uh, Hagar is declaring at the well. Uh, and that well is even named uh, God who sees me. And Ishmael is a name that means God has heard. So even in the depths of her betrayal and her misery, uh, Hagar is saying, God sees me and God hears me. And I just hope that each one of you realize that that's not just something that I'm giving words to. Like that's the heartbeat, that's the essence of this story. We are supposed to read this story and we are supposed to know that even in the depths of your betrayal and your misery and your loneliness, God sees you. And God hears you. And this is just the 16th chapter of the Bible. Like, this is a very early and essential message that God wants to communicate to us. And I hope you hear it tonight. Another takeaway is this. Even when betrayal and misery seem all-encompassing, even when it seems like that's all your life offers at this moment, God is an abundant and ironic promise keeper. I already talked about how all the promises that were made to Abraham and his line were also kept 
to Hagar and Ishmael. But there's something else that's really beautiful here too. Um, I'll just be really frank. A lot of churchgoers think of, uh, the, the, of Israel and Jewish people as God's promised people. And they think of uh, the Muslims as just kind of like the foil in the story, right? They're just kind of the, the antagonists that are just supposed to be there to lose battles and get punished by God. But I want to draw your attention to a really beautiful verse in Isaiah 67. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 7. It's talking about something that's going to happen at a future time, and it says this, All of Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and, I, and they will adorn my glorious temple. Uh, for those of you that didn't brush up on your uh, line uh, ancestry of Ishmael, Kedar and Nebaioth are the first two sons of Ishmael. So what this verse is saying is that in the future, even a large percentage of the Islamic world are, are, are going to come to God. They're going to discover Christ. They're going to be they're going to be blessings in God's story. Uh, and just like it says in Revelations that every tongue and tribe and nation will be in heaven, we're going to have Islamic brothers and sisters in heaven. Uh, I mean. Maybe that's not the best way to say it because their allegiances would have changed. But the people from this region of the world, the people from this ancestry, are going to be in heaven. They're going to be blessing God. And so uh, what seems like just kind of this, this, after, uh, this afterthought, this kind of abstract part of the story, like, oh yeah, they're going to be cast off. They're just going to sort of be uh, uh, on the outskirts of the rest of these Old Testament stories. But it tells us that God is an abundant and ironic promise keeper. And these same promises that we read through the Old Testament, hoping come true to Abraham and his descendants, also on some level will come true to Ishmael and some of his descendants as well. The takeaway for us is that God is an abundant promise keeper. And even when you're in the desert, and even when you're at the well, and even when you seem like your story has nothing but misery, and God overlooking you, this story reminds us that God keeps his promises in abundant and unexpected ways. Um, Finally, the author is, uh, let's, let's talk about one final thing here. If I were to tell you that we were going to have a sermon about a slave that gets neglected and left in the desert to die, who, who here would be excited about having to preach that sermon? Who, who here would think that would be a, 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 a great church story to talk about? As I read through Genesis 16 this week and all the details and, and this neglected person just kind of at a low point, I kind of thought to myself, like, what the heck, author? What's going on here? Why would you use this story? Why would you put this so early out in the Bible? Uh, what are you trying to communicate to us about God? Uh, and then it hit me that, of course, the author is foreshadowing another time when a father will neglect his son in a dry and thirsty place so that a great promise will be fulfilled. Right? Like this story occurs because Abraham the father is neglecting his son out in the desert. He left them to die. And that's sort of the uncomfortable realization of what's happening in the story. But in Matthew 27 46, Jesus Christ is on the cross and he says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? God, why are you leaving me here? Why are you neglecting me? Why am I going through this miserable moment on the cross? I think this story is foreshadowing 
the ultimate solution to this problem? What's the ultimate solution to when we're overlooked, when we're feeling miserable, when we feel isolated and lonely? The ultimate solution is that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was neglected by God the Father so that he could take our place in judgment. And when he took our place in judgment and he was found to be perfect and without sin, he was then able to extend his righteousness onto us. That's the story of the gospel. That's what everything in scripture, even Genesis 16, is pointed towards. That's how we will never be fully neglected. That's why we will never be fully lonely uh, because of what this story is ultimately pointing to how Jesus solved this problem for us. I'd like to invite the worship up. Yeah, the worship team's going to come forward and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as they do, let me close with this. I think what this story is really about is that even in the depths of your misery, God sees you. But of course, emotionally, that doesn't feel like that could be true. Uh, when we go through divorce, when we go through tragic loss, when we go through terminal health diagnoses, we just, that's all we can think about. It's all we can feel. We don't think that it's possible that God could see us or that God could hear us. But I want you to think back to that whale for a second. Remember 52? Just out there, swimming through the ocean. I, I'd say that he has a small brain, but a blue whale probably has a giant brain. It's probably like the size of a Volkswagen, okay? But it has no comprehension of the greater outside of the ocean world. That whale has inspired songs and poems and movies and tattoos and articles, and expeditions. That whale is heard. There are people that understand the plight of what that creature is going through, even though it has no possible way to comprehend that it is heard and that it is known. And in the same way, you might have come here tonight feeling like there's no person that could understand your exact moment. Just think about how that's true with that whale. It can't possibly conceive how it's true that its situation is known in the same way God knows and hears and sees what we're going through.